Welcome to the Wangaratta Baptist Church podcast. Thanks for downloading. We hope you enjoy it and that it is a blessing to you. If you'd like more information about our church, our services, our programs, or our people, go to our website, www.wangaratabaptist.com.au, or you can download our free iPhone app in the App Store. Thanks and have a great day. Acts reenacted. So far at this, at this time, we've looked at the start of the church age. And uh, we've looked at the upper room, we've looked at the day of Pentecost and, and uh, those sort of things. And the issue, the dawning in of the church age uh, on that day of Pentecost in the upper room there. And um, we've also looked at Peter's first address uh, to that interested crowd that happened to gather when um, you know, a bunch of people got around and they could not uh, deny that Jesus was doing something pretty cool and, and, uh, and, or that God was doing something, something phenomenal was happening and they couldn't help but, uh, but get around and Peter was able to address that crowd and you know we we saw the sim, we saw the the insight about the depth about peter's message to the jews but also the simplicity of our message as well and and uh, so i really encourage you those two sermons at the moment are on cd form at the back there will's done a great job of uh getting that done and there's plenty of download options as well so do have a listen and um and try and you know allow this to sort of sink in because i really think god's going to do something in this series as we keep exploring there's a movement out there called natural church development, which takes a wide-ranging look at how the church grows in a holistic and, na- and sort of natural sense. Uh, it's a pretty extensive science nowadays, and I'm kind of interested in it. And uh, it's, it's a really good thing. And there's lots of surveys and different things. I'm, I don't know, if has this church ever participated in one of those, uh, a natural church uh, growth survey at all? No? Okay, a lot of churches around the place do it, and uh, that's cool. But what we're reading in the second chapter of Acts here is the very first study in this field. And this was a study that was not fudged because people were giving, you know, were being evaluated and giving the best answer they could. This was actually Luke making a, an observation of real and natural goings on uh, from the early church days. We know the early days of the Jerusalem church saw great success. If you were to tell a young church planter today, that a city of 25 to 30,000 people, which is what Jerusalem was at the time, plus a big bunch of annual tourists were going to be all stopped in their tracks by what God was doing and you'd get a chance to preach to them all and 3,000 people would respond to the gospel as you held the microphone, I don't think any church planter today would believe you. That's like, the day of Pentecost is kind of like all of the rural city of Wangaratta meeting in Reed Street on the day of the Jazz Festival. That's the sort of environment we're talking about there. And Peter getting to preach to a crowd like that. That's the sort of um, dynamic that's going on here. And now we're going to complete the second chapter and read about the state of the early church in the wake of Peter's first address to these people. And here it is, Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 42 to 47. This finishes the chapter off. It's on the screen there, or you can find it in your Bibles. I don't know what page number it is on those Bibles, but you should have bought your own anyway, right? (laughs) Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now our passage today is believed to be a transitional passage where Luke gives a short summary of the last couple of chapters before moving on to his next theme. And his next theme is actually the early opposition or persecution of the church. And it's a really glowing summary when you look at it. Luke's description of the church in its early days shows us what naturally happens when the Holy Spirit descends and empowered Christians proclaim the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no church growth formula in place here. No one got the latest book and said, we're going to do a a six-week series on how to be this particular model. There was no mission statement on the wall going, this is what we are. Instead, they were united under the idea of this is who we are in Christ. It was just open hearts and obedient believers. That's what we're talking about here. The result is a list of natural byproducts which are necessary for believers to grow in conviction and for the church to grow in community and public effectiveness. And my task today is to actually unfold these natural byproducts. But for a moment, we are going to pray. Not because I'm nervous or not because I'm, you know, but because I actually want to make sure that we are all on the same page and we all come to that central focus of saying, Jesus, teach me something today, beyond even what I say. Let's allow Jesus to speak to us personally today. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you this time. We, we ask you to speak to us through these, these statements of Luke in this book today. We ask you to, to help us to go through the times of self-examination. We ask you to help us to go through the, the times where we can celebrate where we're right. And Jesus, we ask you to, to help us to, to, to um, grow further into being that Book of Acts church, Jesus the one that actually is effective in our community and and reaches in and and touches lives in the most profound way. Jesus, help us to take on board these natural byproducts of your spirit and amongst us. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, into this church today, into us as a congregation. Not the special effects, but simply your teaching, comforting paracletos, the comforter, the one who can guide us through all things and teach us all things. We invite you in this place and we open ourselves up to you, Jesus. And we ask you to illuminate the scriptures as we talk them through today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The first byproduct of this highly functional church is their devotion to apostolic teaching. Throughout the entire New Testament, we see the incredible value of God-appointed human teachers. Their task was to ensure that the church remained as unified as it could possibly be in all things in the area of doctrine. We see the foundations of the Apostles' doctrine in Peter's first address. We see him address the life, the deity, the mission, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And the place of the Old Testament, the Torah, in pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. That was the key foundational doctrines that Peter was starting with with this particular church. Over time, this would be, they would be needing to address other areas of concern, both in Scripture and in conduct. And, and particularly when the Gentiles began coming to Christ, uh, they really needed to address a lot of different things and try to translate the Torah into something that the Gentiles could embrace as well. 
But the apostles were recognized by the church as the doctrinal authority. We see in these few verses that they were also endorsed by God himself through the many demonstrations of signs and wonders that the apostles did. Now signs would often accompany instruction. And wonders would cause awe in the crowd and would bring people to either repentance or worship, depending on the state of the person's heart at the time. There was a clear understanding here that although the Holy Spirit had come and everyone was being filled with the Spirit, the one whom Jesus said would teach all things, God was still using church leaders to speak on behalf of Jesus as well. And in that, the role of the, the, role the Spirit performed was to bear witness or to repel the teaching that came their way. The idea of the, the, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. And it's a great filter for the instruction or the teaching that we receive. We also see that the purpose of this apostolic teaching was not just to be the gurus, not just to be the hotshot, the one with the microphone and the big ministry and the website and the blog and everything out there. No. It was to bring people to a place of doctrinal and spiritual maturity so that they too could become teachers as well. In 2 Timothy 2.2, we see Paul's mindset as he instructs his young and -and up-and-coming protege in Ephesus. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others as well. In Hebrews 5, the writer addresses the believers with a bit of a rebuke. How's this? He says, we have so much to say about this. That is the concept of Jesus being our high priest. That's another thing for another time. But it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers... You yourself need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good for evil. We got yeah, By this time you ought to be teachers. The idea was to raise up other teachers in their midst. The church was clearly instructed to sit under orthodox apostolic doctrine, taught by qualified teachers who were approved by elders and by God. And this same group of believers were also taught to reject any other teaching as false, but also to aim to become competent teachers themselves, so that the message of the gospel continued with fidelity. And you and I are the result of that commitment today. In fact, the idea of the Great Commission was to go and make other disciples. And when Jesus says, you are my disciples, basically the picture there, the idea in today's thing would be, if Jesus were sharing that today, he would be saying, guys, while I'm with you, I'm giving you your L plates and you're learning to be like me, ministers like me. Now that I'm ascending, I'm now giving you your P plates. Now go and find other people and put L plates on them and eventually get them to a place where they have P plates and and so that they, and then give them a set of L's to hand on as well. That's the idea of raising disciples, of being a teacher and raising up other teachers in our midst. Today, the issue of false teaching remains a huge problem and the modern church needs to get back to the place where they are receiving regular solid teaching, particularly to protect themselves, as well as training to teach as well. In that sort of setting and in the first century church, as we see here, there's no place for believers who have a just me and Jesus mindset. 
And for that matter, believers who just want to keep their faith a private thing, that was never the plan. Our faith is always supposed to go private and it's supposed to be shared. There's a church in Colombia at the moment that their pastor got shot. Before that time, he was trying to lead the city and trying to pray for the needs of their city and stuff. There was a, a really full-on time where some revival was happening, but there was also great, uh, great opposition coming, and that pastor ended up being shot. Instead of the church running and hiding, the pastor's wife rose up as the leader of that church, and they saw an amazing influx of loads of people coming to Jesus. And we see football stadiums filled for prayer meetings and stuff like that. Now, football stadiums, soccer stadiums in South America their crazy football stadiums that's like the mcg and so we're talking big stuff and i remember this this woman actually speaking at a church in melbourne some years ago and in their church this is how they break it up you have disciples and you have disciplers that's it so in other words you become a disciple and the plan is you grow in maturity then you become a discipler they had so many people coming in that they had to be simplify how they did things but I think that's a pretty good model to work with. Are we a disciple or are we a discipler? The next distinctive Luke lists was their commitment to fellowship. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia, meaning to share or participate in common. And the idea was that this was to be done in a very liberal way. The extension of koinonia was koinonikos, which is actually the Greek word for generosity. The idea is that a group of believers are to come together with the understanding that we are engaged in something pretty spectacular and we are sharing that spectacular thing with other like-minded people. 1 Corinthians 1.9 tells us that God calls us in a fellowship, a generous common partnership with his own son, Jesus fellowship begins with our relationship with god through jesus christ and then extends into the church community around us with christ at the center of who we are as a body of believers there is that suddenly that that great assurance and that great sense of camaraderie because we're all in this thing together fellowship was especially important in this new church setting in jerusalem because they weren't aware of this yet, but opposition was soon to be coming their way. In fact, chapter 3, when, when Luke makes this assessment, he's getting the, you know, getting the reader ready to hear about the next phase that was coming their way. Opposition was coming. Fellowship helped them understand that a line in the sand had been drawn. And they were now separate from the world out there. But they would be okay because they knew they weren't alone when the trouble came. A couple of decades after this, we see that the idea of koinonia had been picked up by Christians far abroad as well. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul commends the churches of Macedonia for their concern for the Jerusalem church. There was actually a time of famine in Jerusalem, and, and the church in Jerusalem, uh, the, churches, the Gentile churches did a big collection to actually send aid to the Jerusalem church. He writes about them that they begged him again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift of the believers in Jerusalem. That word sharing there is the same word we've been using, koinonia. They wanted to koinonia with Jerusalem here. Fellowship in the early church was a natural byproduct of church life. And as church grew, as the church grew, we see that it knew no borders. We also see here that fellowship was the birthplace of extreme generosity and regard for the welfare of others in their midst. 
Verse 44 and 45 tells us there was a singleness of thinking and regard which even led them to selling possessions and property to ensure that others were not left in need. As you can imagine, that's created some divided thinking. There have been groups over the years who have called for communal living and common ownership of property as a way to living the Acts 2 sort of life. There are modern social and church commentators who make a poor assessment of the church because of the fervor of generosity that is presented in Acts doesn't seem to look like the type we demonstrate today. On the other end of the spectrum, there are those who suggest that this was a localized issue that was pertinent to the Jerusalem church only and none of that can be used as a principle at all. We shouldn't go anywhere near that particular idea. It's fine. We don't have to do that. As I did my research this week, I saw old Matthew Henry, one of the old commentators, was pretty passionate in his stand. He says, if we disregard this out of hand as merely history, then one might as well just contend that we shouldn't love our neighbors as ourselves either. A study of this, ter- of this text reveals that the sharing of property and possessions was a voluntary thing. If they sold everything off, then verse 46 wouldn't have happened where they broke bread in people's homes. Rentals weren't really that sort of good over there, back then. The original grammar used in this text to imply frequency is described by scholars as an imperfect tense. And they conclude that the giving and the selling were not hard and fast rules and not once and for all, but to be understood as when the need arrived. I stand before you confident today that I don't have to sell my house on Murdoch Road in order to be a functioning member of our church community. However, the Bible is clear on this. Generosity was always on God's agenda for the people of God. Deuteronomy 26 says this, When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you should give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then say to the Lord your God, I have removed from my house the sacred portion and have given it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all you have commanded. And I have not turned aside from your commands or forgotten any of them. James one twenty seven tells us that religion our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. 1 John 3.17 says, If any of you has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? I read an online article this week that was titled, A Eulogy of the American Church. And I sort of found myself agreeing with the thoughts that were present when he was talking about the attitudes and the cultural elements which could unravel the Western church. The three things he talked about were the culture of celebrity, where we heap people to ourselves rather than Christ. And we thrive on their affirmation rather than the well done of heaven. That's a big risk for people like me as a leader. There was the culture of consumerism, where we're all about what we can get out of our local church without having to give anything back. And a culture of competition, where human ambition overrides the will and purpose of God in the church. The antidote to all that is what we read about in the early Jerusalem church. Sacrificial generosity and true fellowship. What we see in our text today is a group of believers who chose to serve rather than be served. A a group who chose to produce rather than consume. 
a group of believers who had no church up the street to compete with. Instead, they held a unified front to take on their common enemy. And that was the spiritual and physical forces at work around them aimed at stopping their influence. The end result was was a church that had real favor with those around them and an open door of revival. 50 years ago, Martin Luther King said this, If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, it will forfeit the loyalty of millions, and it will be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Fellowship and all that comes with it, generosity, sacrifice, brotherly affection, really does matter in today's church. And finally, out of fellowship came the connectedness to worship together, both small and large. Acts 20 verse 7 tells us that the apostles had a practice of coming together on the first day of the week to break bread with the believers. And we see that the breaking of bread began in Jerusalem. The church met regularly in each other's homes to celebrate the communion table and then follow on with what was known as the Agape Feast. This practice ensured that Christ remained at the center of who they were as a group of believers and that their love for each other was then celebrated at the feast that followed. You know, in all seriousness, the monthly communion table event that we host on Sundays doesn't have to be the only time we celebrate the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. It can be a very solemn thing when done in a home study evening event or even at the beginning of a meal like the first century believers did. This was a great picture of the church dwelling in intimacy. Homes open for food, open for worship, open for fellowship. Believers at their least guarded and their most transparent before each other by opening each other's homes. Now as a teenager growing up in my faith, I used to love this about the church I was part of at the time. We were a church of about 150 people and and you can get lost in a crowd like that very easily. I I respect that. But we were able to get in. There was always homes open for us to have fellowship at. There was always places, you know, people saying, come on over. You know, every new person who come in the church was embraced and come on over to, you know, come and hang with us. Come and spend time with us. In Frankston, where we were doing ministry, a a young adult guy came in um, from a pretty crazy background and, and, and joined the church and stayed with the church because he was invited to the pizza shop that everyone else was going to after church. There was something really special about that sort of small group gathering that happened. There was always a great joy at the times my folks opened up our home as well. It was always just really good to have people in your own home. Mum put out the best food back then. She would always get out the best uh, cutlery and crockery and you know there would always be the lasagna, the corn and a few different foods that we really liked eating and, and everyone else knew it was coming. It was really good. It was an awesome time. You know what? It's in the intimate setting of someone's home that some of my most pressing faith questions were answered, where some of my greatest church friendships flourished and some of my greatest encounters with God occurred. I could ask the questions I couldn't ask in a setting like here. I could rub shoulders with people and talk more openly with people more so than I could do here. And it got me through in a smaller setting. Their fellowship also flowed on into the area of corporate prayer and worship. 
Prayer was viewed as an essential part of the spiritual growth of the church. And we see the believers made the daily trip to the temple courts to pray. That is a modern shot. That is pretty much how it would have been. We're talking a pretty uh, full-on time. A lot of you know, devout people. This is the middle of Jerusalem. This is, this is awesome. At heart, they were still Jews. And although they didn't participate in the sacrifices, the temple was still their reference point for God, the presence of God. However, they were also able to come to those courts knowing that through Christ, nothing would hinder their prayer and that as believers, they had entered their own position of priesthood before God. This time of daily prayer was also a time where they came to hear the Old Testament read out and be expounded on upon as well. They would be taught there in these temple courts as well. The need to meet together to pray as believers has never been greater. The church you know, in its origins was marked particularly as a prayerful church. Even today, when we read about the great revivals of recent history, we see that they were all launched off a massive movement of prayer. My heart for this congregation is to move into a place where prayer together, together becomes a lot more commonplace. This morning, four people met to pray before the service. We, we, our doors are open at nine. Wouldn't it be great to have 40 people coming together to pray before our service started? And then after at 9.30, be available to meet with the people and meet our newcomers and have a great time to meet them. We need to come to a place where we unify for prayer, not just for our own needs, as valid as they are, but also for the needs of our church and for our city as a whole. Jen's got her Wednesday prayer meetings back on on Wednesday mornings. Jen is uh, leading up the charge there, and, and, uh, and they're back on this Wednesday at the church, right? So this Wednesday, there's a great chance to meet together and pray. I'm happy to even open the church a bit earlier. If you want to come in and do devotion or prayer before, the, before your day begins, let's open the church early. Let's find ways of doing that. I know at home sometimes if a television's too loud or if the kids are demanding our time, it's hard to separate ourselves at time at home. Maybe we need that space and time given here. Morning devotions, morning prayer before your day starts. All those things are doable. Nudge me, have a chat, let's see what we can make happen. Or champion it yourself and have something start. We learn from this little passage in Acts that prayer was a hallmark of a vibrant and growing church in Jerusalem. Today that is no less true. A vibrant and growing church today will have a significant movement of prayer around it. Prayer achieves much more than any fancy lights on a stage or any church growth model or business plan you can read about. Instead of tapping into the next big thing, prayer taps into the greatest thing, the attentive ear of God. Now the Church of Jerusalem was committed to being taught and becoming teachers. That's a great thing. It was committed to generous fellowship and it was committed to worship and prayer in varying settings. Sounds like a great model. How did the community react to that? Really well. Their movement was gaining a general sense of favor in their city. People knew who, were they, who, who, who they were. They knew what they stood for. They knew how they acted. And they liked it. Not everyone, of course. We know the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and the powers that be were doing all they could to shut it down. But the people at large viewed the church with great favor. It had integrity. It had genuine love. It had generosity and service. It was transparent. It was a tight-knit community and had a move of the Spirit to supernaturally back them up in what they taught. 
if you think about it, it's almost impossible to knock that sort of church. In today's society, there are a handful of common objections to the church. I'm not saying us particularly, but these are the things that you will hear from people out as you, as you engage in your community. There's hypocrisy. Your church is clicky. There's no love there. There's no power. There's no sense of belonging. There's no acceptance of me or understanding of where I'm at. It can be too political. The list goes on. What objections could they, could they make about the Jerusalem church here? Too much spiritual power evident? Too many miracles? Too much love? Too generous? Too much prayer? Too much food? Lord, haste the day when they say that about us. Perhaps the most telling part of this is the last line of the passage. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Jerusalem church was marked by a growing list of people who liked them and their Jesus so much that they joined them and did the same things every day. And here's the cool thing. It wasn't people coming in from other churches. That dynamic didn't exist. It was people being added to their number on a daily basis by going through the door of salvation. The church grew on a daily basis because people were choosing to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. God didn't add believers to the church without saving them, showing us there was no such thing as nominal Christianity in those days. And we see that God didn't save people without adding them to the church, showing us that the idea of a solitary faith was never meant to be in the plan of God either. In the early days, the church grew because people made a conscious choice to receive God's salvation by faith in Christ. And after doing so, they willingly, warts and all, wholeheartedly, latched to the rest of the body of believers with joy and full commitment. That was an amazing community response to what the church was doing. Let's wind it up. What a church they had in Jerusalem back then. Let's take some time now to ponder us. Not with the attitude of, man, I'm such a worm. But an attitude of, wow, we are on the right track. I really, before I read this list out, let me put this disclaimer in. As a church, we are on the right track to being a very effective church in this community. We are a great church and you are a great bunch of believers. But it's always good to read scripture through the lens of how it applies to us. And no matter what passage we get our way, we do have to ask the question, how does that apply to me, Jesus? So let's ask Jesus as we go here. Corporately, individually, how are we going? The Jerusalem church was a church that was dedicated to instruction. If we ever get to the place where we think we know it all, why aren't you passing it on to someone else yet? The plan is to receive instruction in order to give that instruction to others. How are we tracking? How am I tracking? Am I being instructed, Jesus? Am I committed enough to, my, to the instruction of, that actually sustains me? Do I know right from wrong? Do I, know, do I have solid food, not milk, in my spiritual makeup? And can I then clearly give it to somebody else to run with as well? That's the journey of instruction. 
a church that was dedicated to generous fellowship, real love in their midst, no one in need. Proverbs 31 says to speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves. That's not won't speak up for themselves. Okay, I'm not talking about abusing a privilege here, okay? This is about people, you know, if, you, if, you're, you know, if you're a poor steward with your cash and always in need, then there's a, you know, there's, a, there's a won't category and there's a can't category, okay? So let's not be abusive of these things, but real generosity to people who need, who are in genuine need, how do we go? There's a place where its members hold all things in common, who understand we're in, you know, that we're all in fellowship with Christ first and by extension each other. Are we in genuine fellowship as a body of believers? Or are we flying solo? We've got a church that was dedicated to worship. Not about whether or not the song suits you or not, but breaking bread together, coming around the Lord's table with gladness and, and, and fellowship, meeting together to pray and encourage each other, meeting each other to receive instruction and encourage each other further on. Dedicated to worship both in small and large settings. And a church that takes its reputation in the community really seriously. And believers that take their reputation seriously. When we take our reputation seriously, we aim to behave with integrity. And that becomes an attractive thing for the people in the world to see. You know, we've got to be a church that takes ourselves seriously and says, you know what? We want to be attractive to the community. And we guard our hearts and we guard our conduct and we guard our attitude at all times as a result. You know what? I'm not pressing for growth. I'm pressing for being an effective church of Jesus Christ, a shining light in the city. Growth will naturally come out of that. But how are we tracking? How am I tracking? Let's ask that question out of Jesus now. Let's close our eyes. We're going to close in prayer.